Today's reading is from Acts 4, 1 through 22. Hear the word of the Lord. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of men came to about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in their midst, they inquired, By what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people, for all were praising God for what had happened, for the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks. You may be seated. Well, good morning, good morning. Uh, my name is Gabe Coyle. I'm one of the pastors here. And I want to begin with a question. And this isn't rhetorical. I'm actually looking for your response, for your engagement. And I'm going to put your answers over here on this dry erase board. I would love to know what you think makes up most of our prayers. What you think makes up most of our prayers. Now, if you consider yourself a person of faith or not, we all pray, um, but the question I have for us this morning is, and I, I, it's easier to talk about what are our prayers rather than my prayers or your prayers. It's a little more disarming. So let's just say, you know, your friend's prayers. Like, what are most people praying about? And I want you to feel free to just shout it out. What makes up most of our prayers? Healing. Healing. Okay. What else? Guidance. Guidance. Yeah. What's that? World condition. World condition? Yes. Okay. 
keep them coming. Wisdom. Wisdom. What was the other one? Sorrow. Sorrow. Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving. Keep them coming. Family. Family, yeah. What else? Praise. Personal concerns. When you're praying, what comes to mind? What are you talking to God about? Forgiveness. Forgiveness. Anything else? Intercession. I'm a terrible speller, so when I just don't know, I just start scribbling. What else? Acceptance. Some of you are checking my words now. This is good. A job? Yeah. Anything else? What was that? A car. A car? Yeah, we start getting into some of these material needs as well as the jobs that provide for those material needs. Confession. Confession. What was that? Repentance. Repentance, yeah. I mean, these are all really important and really good. I mean... Many of us, too, we spend time in gratitude before meals uh, for the food that we have been given or the drink that we've been given in a world with limited resources. There are so many things in which make up our prayers, and these are all really good. I mean it because God longs to hear from his people, doesn't he? He, he cherishes the prayers of his children. And last week, we, we looked at what it means to name the name of Jesus, to call upon the name of Jesus, and how Actually, God has given us the name of Jesus. We end our prayers in the name of Jesus. But it got me wondering as to whether or not our prayers, and this may sound crazy, but whether our prayers are too small. And what if, hear me out, what if when we prayed like really big prayers, if you want to use big and small as kind of categories, when we pray really big prayers, it actually could make our lives a lot harder, not easier, or bring more relief. I wonder, and I ask this question to myself, would we pray big prayers if we knew praying big prayers would make our lives more difficult rather than easier? I mean, what if God was actually willing to make matters worse in your life and mine, at least in the short term, for some ultimate good for you and for those around you? What if when we prayed big prayers, God would actually do that? He, could, he would in invite hardship and brokenness in our lives. He's willing to let our lives fall apart. Would we willingly pray really big prayers? Not ask for pain specifically. But when God invites us to pray, it can maybe, maybe go that way. And so why would we do this? Why would we maybe pray really big prayers? And we're going to see that actually the folks... Here, our brothers and sisters early on in the church prayed a really big prayer that had the capacity of making their life all the more difficult. Why would we pray these kinds of prayers? Because listen, the goal today isn't to make anyone feel guilty for how you pray, okay? I think churches are notorious for doing that. Maybe I've been notorious for doing that at some points in my life. That's not the goal. The goal of today is actually to highlight and, and show us an, a bigger way of praying, a better way of praying of what God is inviting you and I to as his people. An invitation to see God at work in our lives in ways that we maybe could not have imagined before. Engaging people we thought were untouchable. Making inroads for the gospel that we thought would never be possible. 
And when we pray big prayers, you know what happens? God stops being some distant giver of good gifts and he starts to show up. And it doesn't always look, it doesn't always look like what we think it ought to or will look like. And listen, this morning, this doesn't come from just some base principle, isolated and untested from history. What we're actually going to say, see, is that this comes from examples and experiences of our brothers and sisters. If you're here this morning and you're a follower of Jesus, we see this in our brothers and sisters in the early church as recorded here in the book of Acts. You see, these early Christians, they knew something that we often forget. They knew that we could not be who we are called to be and to do what we're called to do in our own strength. To be witnesses of Jesus to everyone everywhere which is why we've kind of titled this little mini-series and we have all this beautiful um, display around us, The Beauty of Weakness. The Beauty of Weakness. There's so much brokenness and weakness. This is where God's strength shines through. As Christian, if you're here this morning or you're curious about what it means to be a Christian, at the heart of it, it means that you admit you're weak. And in the paradox of faith, we come to discover that admitting your weakness is the pathway to God's untold strength. Let's see how that's the case. Turn with me, if you haven't already, in your Bibles to Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4. If you are using one of our community Bibles from back there, that's on page number 911. So at this point in Acts, um, the the history of the early church, Peter and John, they're standing on trial before the leaders of the Jewish faith in Jerusalem. But standing near them, if you remember from last week, and if you weren't here last week, standing near them is a man who was lame, meaning he could not use his legs, and he was born that way. He was born crippled. And having sat in the same spot day after day after day for over 40 years, Peter and John come up to him, and in the name of Jesus, this man who could never walk a day in his life is now standing, miraculously healed, not just so that he can walk, not just so that he can run, but so that he can jump. And that just doesn't happen. And so a crowd starts gathering around and they're all asking the questions, where is this coming from? So why are Peter and John on trial after this? Like, isn't this a good thing? Isn't this something that people should be celebrating? They're on trial here because in the very heart of the holy city, here at the temple in Jerusalem in the first century, people people left and right are beginning to trust in Jesus. And this is a big deal Because people, based upon the eyewitness accounts of the apostles, and because God has done something in the name of Jesus to this man who was born lame, they're starting to trust in the name of Jesus, are believing that Jesus is who he said he was, and that he died for their sins. And if he died for their sins, and is seated at the right hand of God the Father, and is going to come again, if they're forgiven through Jesus' sacrifice, then what are the use of all these other sacrifices in the temple system? This is a huge attack on the infrastructure of the Jewish faith, or at least what was perceived at that point of the Jewish faith. What is going to become of this temple that's at the very center of their identity? And so we read that the Jewish religious leaders, deeply vested in the sacrificial system of the temple, what does the text say? They are greatly annoyed that Peter and John keep talking about and teaching people about Jesus and are doing amazing things in the name of Jesus, such that now there's another element of revival. There went from 3,000 to 5,000 men, which means more roughly around 10,000 men, women, and children who are now following Jesus, who are bearing testimony to the witness of who Jesus is and what he's done. And so Peter and John, 
they begin to shake things up. And after spending a night in prison, they got arrested for this. They spent a night in prison and they're before the Sanhedrin, which is the religious leaders there in Jerusalem. And there in court, the Sanhedrin asked them, by what power or name did you do this? And we read what? That Peter, he doesn't do this in his own cunning. He doesn't come up with a really great idea because he's really brilliant. He's filled by the Holy Spirit. So he's not alone. God is actually guiding his speech. He doesn't speak out of his own insight. He begins to give a testimony about Jesus. How Jesus is the one who actually healed this man born lame. And how, and then he goes very direct. How you killed him. But God raised him from the dead. You rejected Jesus, but God made him the very cornerstone, which was the stone, the very first stone that builders would place and they would strategically position because it would shape the whole structure. And those who are behind this temple structure had rejected this cornerstone. So God is building something new, a new movement that is founded and formed by the person in the work of Jesus Christ. And then Peter says something absolutely astounding. Remember, the Spirit of God is, is working through Peter. This isn't him coming up with this. This isn't him just logically deducing this. He says in Acts chapter 4, verse 12, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. I mean, what a statement. Some of you, if you grew up in the church you know this statement. But I want you to imagine there in the first century how bold, how audacious this claim was standing right there in the shadow of the temple. This is both astoundingly exclusive and simultaneously inclusive. It's exclusive in that there is absolutely no wiggle room from this point on as to who holds the keys to life and life abundant now and eternal life beyond the grave. Only Jesus, no one else has conquered the grave and can give life. And if we long for eternal life after the grave and life and life abundant now, it must come through Jesus. Must. Allah and his prophet Muhammad do not have the key to eternal life. The Buddha and inspiration and, and, and enlightenment do not offer the key to eternal life. And now no longer does the sacrificial system in its old regulations and ways. Now Jesus is the cornerstone. All of the sacrificial system has been pointing to him. All of history has been pointing to him. And no other name, no other religion, no other philosophy can deliver but Jesus. It's astoundingly exclusive, and yet it's simultaneously inclusive because what does Peter say? By we must be saved. He doesn't say you he includes himself. He also must be redeemed. It doesn't say just a specific group of you. He says we. This is holistic salvation that's made available to all who call on the name of Jesus. And there's no bolder claim this whole world over than this summary statement. And yet, when you get to verse 13, what's absolutely astounding isn't just this bold claim but what the religious leaders saw in Peter and John. Look here at verse 13. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. Here are these backward Galileans and yet they had something about them, something that actually reminisced of Jesus. And it was their boldness. Now, 
I, I know there's a lot of different pictures um, that maybe run through our mind when we think about boldness and the church. Um, and honestly, a lot of churches have done this poorly. Many faith communities have engaged in activities of hate underneath a banner of boldness, mainly because they don't understand what the text is highlighting here as boldness. And I don't say that in a place of presumption or arrogance, but mainly to guide us back to the text. Because it's also not a call to then sit on our hills and to be overly kind so that we're never offensive. That's not also what we see here. But notice the religious leaders, what they didn't see was resembling some sort of brashness or some rash response here from the apostles. What they didn't see was resembling any arrogance in the apostles as if they came from a place of privilege or superiority over the Jewish religious leaders. And they certainly didn't see, the religious leaders didn't see any shouting or browbeating going on here from the apostles. That's not what boldness means here. That's not what boldness looks like when the Spirit is empowering God's people. That's not what boldness looks like when it reminisces of Jesus. So what do they see? When they see, when they look, and then they perceive that these are, these are common men, uneducated men, and yet they saw this boldness that left them astonished, that reminisced of Jesus. What should we see as followers of Jesus? When they look at Peter and John, they see a fearlessness. A fearlessness to stand with Jesus and for Jesus no matter what. They see a confidence. And, and here's where this confidence is crucial. It's a confidence to be clear in the bold claim. No mincing of words. An absolute clarity on what this boldness and what this claim means. There's not this, well, it kind of means it's no. Like there is salvation in no one else. There's a confidence to be utterly clear when sharing this message. And they see a willingness to risk everything. And this is where we come to understand what boldness is. Boldness is a spirit-given trust to risk anything, anywhere, being confident that you'll come out alive. Spirit, or, or, boldness is a spirit-given trust to risk anything, anywhere, being confident that you'll come out alive. And, I, and I'm not saying that you won't die, actually. Because what, with, with each of these apostles, if you know anything of church history, then you know all of these guys die. Every single one of the apostles dies. Some of them die really gruesome deaths. But remember, they are witnesses to what and to whom? A resurrected Jesus. Death couldn't hold him down. And when death cannot defeat you, and when death is no longer the end of who you are, then you can be confident that you're going to come out alive. It may be through the doors of death but it will not be the end of your story. And you see this kind of boldness, it's anchored in the message of the gospel. Because Jesus is resurrected, we have a hope of resurrection that death will not be the end. But it is not solely the message. Boldness is a posture in light of our message and empowered by the Spirit. A posture that reminisces of Jesus and how he engaged the world. And if you notice what happens to the Sanhedrin in this moment, they're speechless. <laughs> They've got nothing to say. Because while all this is being said, there's still the issue of the guy who was sitting in the same spot for 40 years, lame, standing next to Peter and John. 
And, and, and it, as you heard the text read this morning, we cannot deny that a powerful sign has been done through them. This guy, everybody knows him. He was lame, and yet he's standing next to them. And he's only standing because they said, in the name of Jesus, rise and walk. And everybody is praising God because of what has happened through them and in this moment in the name of Jesus. So we can't do anything. And the irony is that, that's here is that the apostles, without any power in terms of human structures, are fearless. But those with top-level authority, the Sanhedrin, are, are absolutely terrified. Isn't that astounding, the flip here that happens? And so they, they come up with this plan to tell Peter and John, hey, stop telling people about Jesus or else. Like, that's kind of all they've got. Um, and then Peter and John, they continue down this road of fearlessness. And what do they say? This has become a hallmark, hallmark truth for the church and even navigating how you wrestle with governing structures when it actually contradicts with your faith in Jesus. He says what? Peter says, whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. In other words, you make that call. <laughs> For we cannot but speak of what we've seen and heard. And without any other tactic available to them, the Sanhedrin just keep doing what they feel like they can only do. They just threaten them once again. And then the apostles leave. And then look, look what happens next. This is, this is where, we, we, where we start to get into this conversation around prayer. After Peter and John are released, where do they go? If you go to verse 23, they get together with their friends. I love that language. They get together with their friends and they start praying together. And isn't that the case? You know, C.S. Lewis brilliantly says, what defines friendship is when you have something in common. Love is when you're looking at someone in the eyes and you're infatuated with each other. Friendship is when you're infatuated with something else together. And what we see here is that the apostles are so consumed with the mission that they've been entrusted that their friends are those who are also consumed with this mission. Not that that's the only place they have friends, but some of their closest friends are when they come back and they said, this is what's happening. These are the threats that have come upon us. Let's pray together. I love that. And, and, and amidst everything else that makes up their prayer there in verses 24 through 30, do you know what the one thing they ask for? They say a lot of things. They reaffirm God's identity one to another, speaking of his sovereignty. But do you know the one thing they ask for? Out of everything they could request, everything that would be crucial at this moment, after being threatened and imprisoned, look at verse 29. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. Isn't that astounding? Like, that was a shock for me, and I kind of knew the story. I was reading through, I was like, out of everything they could be asking, in the midst of all the prayers, this is the one request. They aren't looking for protection. They aren't looking for guidance or even deliverance. You know, and listen, th those aren't bad things to be asking for, but when they are firmly anchored in the belief that God is sovereign, that God not only has the ability to help, but has promised to see his mission through, out of everything they could ask, they want boldness. The one thing that put them in the crosshairs of leadership to begin with. They knew that by asking for boldness, it could actually make their lives worse. Do you see this? Because boldness is what got them imprisoned, what got them questioned. They remember the threats, but it didn't matter. Why? Because when you've seen something, when you've seen someone, 
when you've walked and talked with Jesus for three plus years as he's communicating the kingdom of God, as he's pointing people to, 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 to him and his kingdom, when they've seen him heal people who come to him, when you've spent time and looked in the eyes of Jesus, then when you saw him crucified and breathe his last breath and then three days later come out of the tomb physically alive and then you have breakfast with him on the Sea of Galilee there along the beach. You don't have brunch with a dead guy and, you're, and be the same, right? You can't keep quiet after that. Nothing else matters to any degree as big or as important as him. And isn't that what they said? You can say what you want, leaders, but for us, we just can't be keep quiet. We have to talk about what we've seen and what we've heard. And yet, they quote here Psalm chapter, Psalm 2. And yet, even though Jesus is the promised king that every psalm is actually ultimately pointing to, every prophet was ultimately pointing to, that all of history was ordained and orchestrated for, even though Jesus promised to be with them, even to the end of the age in Matthew 28, and promised that his church, right, that the gates of Hades, of death, will not be able to overcome what he's called his people to do. In Matthew chapter 16, in light of all of that, they felt utterly weak here. I mean, after you're threatened again and again and again, and you're shown the swords, you've seen your Savior whipped and flogged and crucified. You feel the, you feel the weight of what it might cost to stand with Jesus. And it can make you tired, and it can make you afraid, and it can make you weak. You see, in this moment, when you walk through their prayer here, and their time together with their friends. It's not even that they doubt God's ability or God's faithfulness to his promises in Jesus. But in that moment, they doubt themselves. And so they pray. You see, prayer isn't a place where we come and define our strengths before God. It's a, it's a moment where we reveal and own our weaknesses and ask for God to, to step in. And one way God is eager to help his people, one of the greatest gifts God is eager to give is boldness. Is boldness. Not that God isn't eager to give brilliance or protection or wisdom or healing or even come alongside of our family or to hear our praise and to be, you know, receiving our thanksgiving. Not that none of those are true. But one of the greatest gifts that God is eager to grant is actually boldness here. To pray for something that rarely makes it into our prayers because it might make matters worse before they get better. And you know one of the reasons why boldness is one of the greatest gifts God's eager to grant? We see it here in the text. The apostles recognize this in the mission. And actually most communicators know this in theory, okay? Here's why. You can't ignore a bold truth claim made by a truly bold person. The message may be bold, but if the messenger is feeble... The messenger may be bold, but the claim may be very much insecure. But when you have both, a bold truth claim and a truly bold person, you can't turn away. You can't turn away. They saw the boldness and also heard the boldness of the gospel. Now remember, we said that there are some really poor pictures of boldness. We often don't understand or put our our own cultural lens as to what boldness is. But when we come to the text, when it's betrayed by Peter and John, when it's boldness empowered by the Spirit, when it's boldness that reminisces 
of Jesus, and it's anchored in who he is and what he's done, then it's a spirit-given trust, not insecurity. Sometimes we act, quote-unquote, bold when it's actually brash because we're insecure and we're overreacting. No, 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 no. This is a spirit-given trust to risk anything, anywhere. Being confident you'll come out alive. Not that you won't die, but that death doesn't have the last, death does not have the last word on you. So it's that no, no matter what you're going through, it'll cause people to ask, where do you get, where do you get this power behind what you speak? And that power isn't in volume, it's not in cunning, but in clarity and in confidence over a very simple but very bold claim. It's the kind of boldness that strikes fear in oppressors that we see here in the text. It's the kind of boldness that raises questions for skeptics. All that we might be witnesses of Jesus to everyone everywhere. Now, when I was wrestling through this, and some of you may be asking, but Gabe, because I asked this of myself, it's like, can, can I really be bold like that? I mean, I feel like I have still too many doubts, still too many questions, too many fears. Can I be bold like that? And I would have to say, first off, no. Um, because this isn't a self-confidence that you boost in yourself. This isn't something that we've somehow conjured by looking at ourselves in the mirror and say, I see pride, I see power. You know, like that's not, that is not where we get this kind of boldness. The boldness is something that God must give. It isn't a personality trait where extroverts have a leg up here. No, it's something that actually can be true in every Christian person. It comes through the Holy Spirit, not through your spirit. And because it's given, you have to ask for it. And I want to ask this morning, are you? Are you consistently asking for boldness? Boldness like this, this time tomorrow. Wherever God has you, in your various vocations and callings, and with whomever God has you with. Because to be clear, this isn't something that pastors should just ask for. Um, I was talking to some others, and they're just like, this seems like a really good message for you, Gabe. Um, or the Billy Grahams of the world, you know, in light of the conversation as Billy Graham has now gone to be with Christ. But listen, you don't have to have a vocation like Billy Graham or like a pastor. You don't have to even have a Billy Graham moment where you have a group of people and you're leading them across the line of faith. But boldness also looks like Michelle Holland, the stay-at-home parent who always is looking for ways to make God normal in the life of her kids and being proactive to tell them about Jesus. Boldness looks like Allie Martin, letting people at work in a natural and unenforced way know that she's a Christian. When she was wrestling with something in her life, she opened her Bible and began telling them about her wrestling through the lens of faith. And it was so natural that they started giving her advice through her faith perspective. They felt honored, invited in to have a dialogue from where she was coming from. It looks like, boldness looks like Nathaniel Walsh who listens to the stories of his employees at Discount Tire and invites them to church and is open about his own struggles and how Jesus is at the very center of the hope of his life. Boldness looks like Alice Harper who though in hospice now and who longs to be with Jesus sees yet even her suffering as an opportunity to now proclaim the hope that she has in Christ while her body begins to waste away with those who are ministering to her. Boldness looks like Nate Collins, who recently published a thought-provoking and honest book about what it looks like to live faithfully as a Christian and as an LGBT person. Though at 
would have certainly been easier for Nate not to be so open about his experiences or his convictions. He chose to be bold so that future generations of LGBT persons could feel encouraged and walk with Christ as God's word beckons us all to walk. And listen, these are just some snapshots. But this boldness can look like you. This is a calling for everyone in the name of Jesus who calls upon the name of Jesus. When the Spirit makes you look like Jesus where you are and to proclaim the message of Jesus where you are. So are you consistently asking for boldness this time tomorrow? Wherever God has you and with whomever God has you. Now, I was thinking about this and um, you probably, yeah, Eddie mentioned that you've got these little prayer cards here on your, on your seat. And, and here's what I'd like you to do. I want you to pick that up for me, if you could. Um, you know, Tyler and I, every Tuesday morning, we spend time praying for various requests or praises. And we pray with you, for you, and alongside of you when you fill these out and place them in the offering box in the back. But today we're going we're gonna to do something slightly more specific when it comes to this prayer card. I want you to take this card and I want you to tear it in half, okay? So roughly half, you know, it could be 40, 60, you know, for those of you who are really looking for it, okay? On the top half here, after you've torn, I want you to write, pray that I would have the boldness of the Spirit. And then I want you to put down the names of two folks in your life. Two folks in your life And then I want you to put your name, if you'd be so kind. And then I want you to drop them off in the offering box on your way out today. And Tyler and I are going to pray with you and for you in this particular area that we see our brothers and sisters modeling for us here in the book of Acts. And actually shows up over and over and over throughout Acts. Even the Apostle Paul says, please pray that I would be bold with this message. And then on the bottom half, I want you to write the same thing. Pray that I would have the boldness of the Spirit and put those two names. And this week, every day, I want you to take this out and to pray that the Spirit of God would give you boldness that reminisces of Jesus in talking about this exclusive and yet inclusive claim with these two folks. And it may look like we've we've shown here one of these different ways in which whether you're telling people about the struggles that you have in your life, maybe it's engaging children or whatever it might be for you. But think about how you're praying and actually pray for the boldness that comes through the Spirit in a way that reminisces of Jesus around two people. And let's watch God show up. Okay, repeat all that. Yeah, let's do it again. So so on this sheet, on the top half, right, pray. Okay, so you got it. And it's actually up on the screen here, Charlie. So pray that I would have the boldness of the Spirit and write two names on those of two people in your life who need to embrace Jesus. Because he's our, he's our only hope. Only, only two. I know you're an overachiever, but just do two for, for Tyler and I. We know we could, we could pray for all the people in the world, but that would take a little while on Tuesday. So give me two, two names. And then on the bottom half, do the exact same thing. It's a copy of the top half, okay? Because when we do, listen, this is so important. God shows up. God shows up. And people take notice. At the end of our story, you know, after the apostles are praying with their friends, what happens? Look at verse 31. We read, The place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. I mean, God's ready to answer. He 
We, we can't pigeonhole that he's going to shake a building. But here's what you can be confident of, is that he will give you an unshakable faith. He's ready to show up with you on Monday, on Tuesday, on Wednesday. And not just in what we say, as bold as our claim may be, but in how we say it. All that Jesus might be made much of, because remember, as we've been saying over these past weeks, God is just as zealous today to make Jesus known this world over as he was in the first century. And it's this kind of boldness, this spirit-given trust that, that risks anything anywhere, being confident that you're going to come out of alive because, not because you won't die or even die a thousand vocational deaths, but because death doesn't have the final word on us as we see as those who have embraced the message of the gospel. And this boldness has been the avenue by which Jesus has built his church over millennia. So I ask again, what makes up our prayers most? And if one of the greatest gifts that God is eager to grant is boldness, let's start praying for this, praying like this boldly together, okay? Let's pray. God, if there are folks here who don't yet know Jesus, I hope they hear out of all of this that by the power of your spirit that they would hear we have an eagerness and a deep conviction of the gospel. That the only hope comes in trusting in the name of Jesus and the person of Jesus and what he's done in the world and what he's doing in the world and that he's gonna come again. We so desperately long as missionaries have throughout history given their lives because of the audacity of this claim, going to places where people had never heard of the name of Jesus and going in boldness, empowered by your spirit. May, if there are those here who are not Christians, may they hear our heart and our love behind all of this. And may they know Jesus and may they come to trust him as their only hope. For those who are followers of Jesus here, God, I pray that for all of us, we would be more bold in a way that reminisces of Jesus, in a way that is empowered by your spirit. Protect us from being brash and also protect us from being scared and fearful. Instead, give us a fearlessness, confidence that comes in the gospel so that we might be the most loving people we can be, sharing this amazing truth about Jesus, sharing Jesus with others. God, that's our heart cry. That's what you've called us to as the church. May we not forget it. Instead, may we lean into it, and may your son be glorified this world over and our city rejoice in the midst of all that. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.